Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Mysterious. Missing. And Murdered. Um, we'd like to thank everybody who's listened in so far. Um, again, you can always find our episodes a few hours early at mysterypodcast.com. Um, and you can find us on social media at M-Y-S-M-I-S-M-U-R-Pod. Uh, that is at on Instagram and Twitter, the Twitstagrams. Um, welcome to the Halloween Spooktacular. You need to edit in someone laughing. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just just modify that a bit. Just add some <laughs> echo. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Again, we'd like to thank everybody who's listening so far. If uh, you would be so kind, if you're feeling up to it, go ahead and leave us a, a review on Apple Podcasts or on iTunes. Um, that helps a ton, uh, more than you know. Uh, so, yeah. And if you have any, you know, questions, thoughts, concerns, suggestions, you can go to our website and we actually have um, a contact us area and you can shoot us a message and we will read that. So if you have cases you want us to cover, have thoughts, ideas, anything that you'd want to talk to us about, go ahead and reach us there or tweet at us. Yeah. So without further ado, let's... uh... Begin the Halloween Spooktacular. Okay, so let's just dive right in. Um, I, I want to preface by saying that this story is a little bit more sad than scary, um, and now I think you may have heard of this one in the past, but we're going to go into some pretty dark details with it. Um, yeah, and this case does involve the death of a child. Yeah, tr- so Trigger warning. That, yeah, so if that is something that you can't listen to, you don't want to listen to, then this is not the episode for you to tune in on. Yep, feel free to skip on to the next one. I assume the next one does not involve the death of a child. I don't know. I didn't write the next one. Um, no, it does not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Um, but this uh, this episode is, is like I said, more scared, sad than scary, but it is probably also the source of the largest proportion of fear around Halloween times that has ever existed. It's probably caused the most amount of needless fear that, that has ever happened around Halloween. Um, it's about a man known as the Candy Man, and would later become to known as the man that killed Halloween. <laughs> um, so, without uh, further ado, I will just dive into our, our main characters here. So, uh, Ronald Clark O'Brien uh, is, is a 30-year-old man, and he lives with his wife, Damien, in Deer Park, Texas. Uh, and they together have an 8-year-old son and a 5-year-old daughter. Um, it's 1974. We're in a small, affluent suburb, and life is pretty good for them. Uh, Ronald is a pretty well-off optician. His wife is a stay-at-home mother. Um, Ronald works for a large optometrist uh, chain in Texas. Um, The whole family is pretty well-liked and friendly with the rest of the neighborhood. Nobody really has anything bad to say about Ronald or his family. Um, So everybody is is, is pretty happy. Life life is all right here. Living that middle-class life. Yeah, living that middle class dream. I mean, literally in 1974, like literally two kids, boy picket fence in the middle of uh, Houston suburb. Everyone is is really happy and nice and friendly with their neighbors. 
So I'm just going to dive right into the, the real climax of the story. Uh, so on Thursday, October 31st, 1974, Halloween, uh, O'Brien took his two kids out trick-or-treating around the neighborhood, and uh, joining them was their neighbor, Jim Bates, and his two kids. So this group of six, two dads and four kids, wandered around the neighborhood doing what kids do on Halloween, trick-or-treating. Um, it was 1974. Like I said, nobody really gave a thought as to what candy anyone was giving their kids. Um, right, people weren't worried about, like, razor blades and chocolate bars and, right. like, anthrax and, you know, stuff like that. People just were all about that wholesome, you know, wholesome Halloween life. Like, that, you didn't worry about that kind of stuff back then. Right, exactly. Like, I remember when I was a kid sitting, like, in my friend's basement while his parents, like, his parents and my mom completely dumped out all of our candy onto, like, their coffee table and sorted through it before we could eat it. And it was, like, two hours before we could eat any of our candy or go through it. And it was miserable for me. We were just, like, sitting there in the basement with our arms crossed just, like, watching some, like, you know, Tales from the Crypt or something while our parents sorted through the candy <laughs> looking for tampered candy or things that had been opened. It was it was terrible. Everyone was terrified that somebody would be trying to kill their children. Right. In 1974, I don't think anyone cared at all, right? Just, like kids riding their bikes and all that it's you know the myth of stranger danger has perpetuated into the modern era um so anyway we're out trick-or-treating we're going down the streets um it's a little bit drizzly but you know no one seems to mind it's halloween and we're trick-or-treating so um so the group gets to a house that has its lights off it's a really heavily decorated house but hey it's halloween even if the lights are off they ring the doorbell and they wait and they wait a little while but no one answers the door. So all of the kids are disappointed, but they're eager to move on to the next house. So Ronald, the dad, offers to stay behind and let everyone go on without him. And he'll just keep waiting a while just in case. So they are anxious. They go on trick-or-treating. Eventually, Ronald actually catches up to the group. And he has a fistful of five of those like 21-inch long massive pixie sticks. And... He says, I got these from that house, and he, you know, this is good shit, right? Um, right, they're like, hell yes. Right, so so he has he has these five big pixie sticks. He gives uh, one to both of his kids and one to each of Jim Bates' kids, and um, they move on with, with trick-or-treating. So on the way back wait, home— wait. You said there were five pixie sticks, but there are four kids. Yes, so on the way back home, they actually run okay. into a kid that Ronald recognizes from church, a 10-year-old boy, um, and he gives the fifth pixie stick to that kid. Um, okay, I was going to be like, man, I got to know about this pixie stick. We can't leave any stones unturned. Right. Any pixie um, sticks unopened. Right. So they make it home, <laughs> and, and Timothy, the, the boy, um, his two kids' names are Timothy and Elizabeth, by the way. Timothy, the eight-year-old boy, Timothy O'Brien, um, of course, wants to, like all kids, I'm sure both kids wanted to at the same time, uh, eat themselves into a sugar coma and uh, then stay awake with a sugar rush until 5 a.m. and then sleep for and 16 then hours. You're right. Yeah, and then sleep for 16 hours on November 1st. Because why not? Um and the first thing, of course, he wants to eat is the pride and joy of his trick-or-treating hoard, which is his pixie stick. Um, so he opened it. Uh, he couldn't get the powder inside of the stick to loosen. It was all, like, clumped up and weird. So he asked his oh, dad for help. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> so Ronald obliged, and Timothy downed most of the stick pretty quickly and uh, then began to complain of a bitter taste in his mouth. 
His dad gave him some Kool-Aid to wash it down. Um, He chugged the Kool-Aid pretty quickly and then went to the bathroom and began to vomit and convulse. Uh, Ronald said that he held his son's body while he convulsed and eventually went limp as Damien, their mom, called 911. Um, Unfortunately, Timothy was pronounced dead in the ambulance on route to the hospital less than an hour after opening this large 21-inch pixie stick. And eating it. And eating it. So, um, obviously something went terribly wrong, and that, you know, incredibly traumatic event. Something went terribly wrong with this pixie stick and their their trick-or-treating. So, um, doctors suspected poisoning because, or at least, you know, not like malicious poisoning, but, you know, chemical ingestion of something hazardous. Um, so naturally, uh, immediately following Timothy's death, because the first thing that he ate was this pixie stick, as soon as word got out, fear and panic just spread everywhere. Um, as soon as the stories reached the, the greater area of the suburb they were in, the Halloween candy panic was basically on immediately later the next day. Um, it's important to note that as soon as it actually got to the greater Texas area and the Houston news sources, this is the first event where anyone that was reported on a state or national level uh, of any poisoned or tainted Halloween candy, really tainted Halloween candy. Um, it's really the first story where like the death of a child as a result of this was published on mass. Um, right. And of course people immediately panicked and right. people everywhere, you know, even if they weren't that close, I'm sure were, you know what I mean? Like throwing their kids candy away or bringing it to the police or right. trying to, you know, Right, Get rid exactly, of it. exactly. Um, so, after this happened, um, doctors, or rather the police, called the lead prosecutor in the county, Mike Hinton. Um, after arriving at the hospital, he wanted to figure out what happened right away. Um, and so did the doctors, obviously. Um, now, Mike Hinton, on a hunch, called the, uh, the head doctor, uh, county medical examiner from the county over um his name was dr joseph a jishim jishim chits jishim jishim sick just i don't know how to say it dr j uh dr j a j um so the doctor um asked hinton asked mike hinton to to smell timothy's mouth um hinton recalls which at first you're like Huh, that's a weird thing, but like, okay, I'm gonna do right, it. You're a right. professional, right? He had, he had already, you know, heard the symptoms and everything of Timothy's death, how he died, and and what he, you know, what the symptoms were immediately before his death. But he asked him to smell his out, mouth, and Hinton recalled the faint smell of sweetness and a very strong smell of almonds. And without skipping oh, a beat, yeah, the doctor said it's cyanide. Well, and the interesting thing, side note, is that not. Everybody smells almonds when they smell cyanide. Really? I didn't it's know actually that. a genetic thing. Yeah, it's a genetic thing, kind of like how when some people eat cilantro, it uh, tastes like soap to them. I love cilantro. I would die. Right. Like, I would too, totally. But this is this has come up in other cases where cyanide poisoning has been used. So the people who immediately were at the scene or who are immediately, you know, in contact with the body didn't smell anything weird because they didn't have that genetic marker that let them. Right. Small almonds, but then as soon as someone else came in who did, they were like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I know exactly what this is. This is cyanide poisoning. Right. Well, potassium cyanide, KCN, is like, it's it's used in a lot of industrial processes. Um, oh, right. Just, like, because 
there's there's reasons why. Anyway, it's used in some industrial manufacturing processes, and like I remember a um, a hot, an April Fool's joke from it, it was less than a few years ago. It was like within the last five years that got spread. Like I work in chemical manufacturing, and it got kind of spread around the the EHS and and uh, manufacturing circles where some lab tech in a large industrial like manufacturing plant for some company had put almond extract into the ventilation and this was a company that used potassium cyanide in its manufacturing process and like especially with potassium cyanide gas the like i don't know if it's like the myth or like the the saying is if you smell almonds it's already too late for you Uh, right so like he put almond extract like you know like you can just buy that at like you know target or cub or something he just put some right. ventilation and let it spread throughout the whole plant and he uh, and then he didn't have a job anymore he didn't have a job anymore they evacuated <laughs> and everybody was and then he couldn't get a job in an industry ever again ever again yeah so that's like instantly blacklisted right so anyway um so anyway we have cyanide poisoning on our hands we have cyanide cyanide poisoning without skipping a beat the doctor replied it's cyanide like before he had even finished his sentence he said almonds the doctor said it's cyanide um an autopsy confirmed an autopsy later that day because now they know it's murder confirmed the potassium cyanide poisoning um doctor the the pathologist was actually able to confirm that uh timothy had consumed enough potassium cyanide to kill uh two full-grown adults at least um, that's r- a lot. Yeah, roughly a thousand milligrams. That's that's acute toxicity. Um, so okay, it's... so here's a question for you though: Where does one just buy cyanide? That's a good. Where question. do you acquire cyanide? <laughs> that's an interesting question. Who who bought this cyanide? Where did they get it? And how, like, why why did it end up in a pixie stick? Um, right. So we'll get there, I assume. Right. So so now you might be thinking to yourself, what about the other four? Exactly right because we know that four other pixie sticks were right gotten on right. the Halloween you know trip. Right now, now Timothy's younger sister Elizabeth, who is five, she's probably fine. I'm guessing as soon as Timothy died or you know started having symptoms, they just took that pixie stick right away from Elizabeth. Um, so they hand that pixie stick over to doctors. Um, now. While they were recovering the other pixie sticks and everything, um, they actually opened the one that was given to Elizabeth. And when they recovered the others, they opened them as well. But they actually found out that the top two inches of the powdered sugar in the pixie stick was removed and replaced with pure potassium cyanide powder. In all Um, of them? In all of them. Um, And they were resealed with with like an industrial stapler. Um, So... They were able to get in touch with Jim Bates. Um, the they you know obviously they had trick- been trick or treating with the family. They must knew them pretty well. They called them right away. Jim Bates's kids were fine, uh, but what about that ten year old kid from church? Right, right, right. right. This unnamed child, or maybe you named him and I already forgot. Uh, no, I did not name him. I was actually I, I I couldn't find his name. I'm guessing there was some you know privacy issues around that. Um, right. All the articles I found just said some random 10-year-old kid from the neighborhood. From church. Right. Okay. So, and 10-year-old kid. Right. And 10-year-old kid. So, the police contacted his parents and explained what happened to Timothy. They raided his candy hoard. He had already gone to bed. I mean, it's it's late at night at this point, middle of the night probably. They raided his candy hoard and couldn't find the pixie stick. So, Uh they, they rush upstairs. They find him asleep, clutching the still closed pixie stick in his fist. 
What a weird kid. Well, it was clear from the way the packaging had been, like, gnarled and tampered with that he had fallen asleep while fighting to open the wrapper and those thick industrial staples that it had been resealed with basically saved his life. Damn. Because the kid couldn't What a lucky kid. I know, because he was too weak to open his big pixie stick. That's one of those things where I'm sure that that human never ate pixie sticks ever again. Yes. So, the potassium cyanide scares out. People start returning candy to the store unopened. Um, People start turning in a ton of candy to the police for testing because they think it looks like it's been tampered with. Um, Right, because at this point they have no idea if it was like a targeted... Right. Like somebody in the neighborhood or if it was somebody like at a candy factory. Right, exactly. You know. Yeah, no, they have no... No real leads at this point. Um, and obviously the news runs with these types of stories, so people start panicking. Um, apparently around this time there was even people like going to the police. Like, have you ever seen a Reese's Pieces wrapper? None of them are like none of them are sealed correctly. They're always a little bit offset, right? People are like looking at these things right. and just scared shitless. Um Like just don't eat any candy. Right. Right. Anything Ex- that's candy, just don't eat it. Right, exactly. <laughs> like People are scared. Um, so pathologists, uh, after recovering all five or uh, the four remaining pixie sticks, I should say, they actually discovered that Timothy had gotten the smaller, the one with the smallest dose. The other Holy four, shit, the smallest dose? Yes. The other four um, uh, probably had enough KCN to kill four to five fully grown adults. Um, so, Holy shit, man. That is so extra. Yeah. Somewhere in the neighborhood of like two and a half to three grams of potassium cyanide. So um, either whoever did this didn't know how much cyanide it took to kill a person or they really wanted to make sure that whoever ate it died. Yes. Because that would have killed very quickly. Like if like it, it, there's no going back from that much potassium cyanide. None. Uh, right. Well, um, and I'm sure. I mean, I don't like know how potassium cyanide works at an intricate level but i'm sure it's one of those things where uh, you know what i mean like you can't like pump someone's stomach for it no and you know like three hours after they've taken that much or whatever yeah like it it can be neutralized but like i think its mode of action is like something on the on the lines of um attacking like cell mitochondria so like right like any cell that it comes in contact with basically is just like, it's a dead cell. So it damages, you know, it's like drinking bleach or something. It damages your esophagus all the way down. Like, as soon as it hits your bloodstream, which is pretty immediately, it, you know, makes it to your heart and brain and everywhere else. Like it's, So, like, maybe you wouldn't want to, like, survive a poisoning of that kind. Maybe yeah. it would be a pretty crappy life. It would be, yeah, there's been some cases of people who have survived, like, potassium cyanide, like, like shots to their face and stuff like that. Where, mm-hmm. You know, they've survived, like, attempted murder. And uh, it's pretty gruesome. There was uh, what was that? What was that old show that was Ripley's Believe It or Not? There was oh, a, I remember that show. Yeah, there was a guy that had like it was like the man with the hollow face, and like he had a hollow face because he had survived a potassium cyanide like attack or something like that. Right. So it's like you know, okay, murder of any kind, an attempted murder of any kind is like pretty douchey like don't go around murdering people right but also that's one of the worst ways to murder someone you yeah, know comparatively to other things i mean at least it's quick but it's pretty bad um yeah so if you're planning to murder y'all don't use potassium cyanide um, continue <laughs> a better a better advice is if you're planning a murder stop planning the murder i think yes that's, that's, just stop full just, stop just full stop 
stop. It's not, just stop. You don't, just stop. Um, so the, back to Mike Hinton, the, the county prosecutor. Once he hears this, um, well, I, I should say there's a quote from him later that is amazing. Um, but even like 35, it's been 44 years since this happened. 34? No, 44 years since this happened. Um, Mike Hinton, very, like, within the last few years, has given interviews about this case. And he, like, his accounts of seeing Timothy's body laying, like, on the medical examiner's table are just heartbreaking. Like, this this, oh. this event broke him. So he was out for blood. Like, oh, yeah. Like, he's like, this is not going to go unsolved on my watch. Like, oh, yeah. we're going to get whoever did this. Yeah, no, like, like every interview that I read of, of, of him basically described him always as tearful when recalling the sight of Timothy's body. Um, so he wants to get it started ASAP. So who's the po- first point of contact here? Of course, Ronald o- O'Brien, the father, right? Right. Now, where did he get those pixie sticks from? Um, so the first night after questioning Ronald, you know, just after Timothy- Timothy's death, they asked him where they came from. Um, they take him back out to the neighborhood and ask him to point out the house specifically that he got them from. But, you know, it's been a traumatic night. His son just died. He's unable to actually point the house out to them. Um, so they let him be. They let him go back to his family. Because um, he's a grieving father, right? Right. A few more days go by, and... Um, they really don't get very many leads. I think like it's three days later. And again, Mike Hinton, out for blood. He's getting anxious. They ask He asked the cops to take Ronald back out to the neighborhood and, and really start pounding the pavement with him. But this time when they take O'Brien out, they start to get a little bit suspicious of him. Of him. Um, so from interviewing the other parents, they know Which that- I'm surprised that they're not suspicious right away, but I guess that they haven't dealt with many- murders right. in this small town right it's like me i'm like kid dies parents yeah especially like smile like like small children murders like uh, that's a that's a hard one right like like if a kid dies typically i assume it's probably like something negligent happened you know like whatever but he starts acting really weird um so from interviewing the so he other starts par- being hinky he starts being super hinky so from interviewing the other parents they know that the o'briens and bates had only walked down two streets because it was drizzly out it was raining um, right so how can you not remember what house it is if you only went down two goddamn blocks right exactly um they also had already canvassed the neighborhood and uh they interviewed literally everybody that lived everywhere right like the like a child has been poisoned like five children were 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 like attempted to be poisoned right um right so all these people are going to be i'm sure if it's a neighborhood with lots of families and lots of you know people who also have children and who have grandkids they're probably like more than happy to try and figure out who did it and exactly. weed out whoever did it right so the police are canvassing they're giving the police even like receipts for their candy police are going through trash to find like pixie stick wrappers and stuff and right. no, at no point uh did they find anyone handing out pixie sticks in anywhere in that neighborhood on Halloween night. It's pretty sus. It's pretty sus. So one of the articles I read uh, basically said they pressed him to remember, uh, at which point he did. And that, to me, like, sounds very unregulated, policey, and suspicious. 
Um, like, they either, like, beat him. Like, it's 1974. They either, like, beat him or, like, They they don't have dash cams. They They, don't have body cams. No, they don't. They, they, they somehow, they squeezed the information out of O'Brien in the middle of the street. So, he was able to remember the unlit house that they went to that we had mentioned earlier. Um, you know, they stopped at a lot of houses. That was the one of note. Um... O'Brien said that someone had only answered the door after the rest of the party had moved on and he was alone, so there was no one else to corroborate this story. He said that someone had answered the door without turning the interior or exterior lights on, had just reached their hand out and handed him five pixie sticks. Not saying anything. Yep, he was only able to describe the man's arm as hairy. There's a hairy arm handed him some pixie sticks. Um, so, of course police are on they, this is their house this is this is where they this is where they're pointing they're like open up and show me your arms they yeah. like pound on the door uh, yeah for real <laughs> so the the man the the house itself belonged to a man named courtney melvin and his family uh courtney is an air traffic controller at uh the local hobby airport um i think it's a local like suburban airport outside of houston it's a pretty small airport um he had a wife and a kid um that day, um, Friday, I think it was, or not Friday, I'm sorry, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday, um, thir- Halloween was on a Thursday, so only a few days later here. Same, right. same day that Timothy had, um, I'm sorry, same day that Ronald had identified the house, the police immediately just go to the airport and arrest him in front of all of his coworkers. So they have Courtney Melvin oh, no. in custody. Um, unfortunately... After interviewing him for about three minutes, they find out that Courtney uh, Melvin had an airtight alibi. Uh, he was working until 11 p.m. on Halloween night. Uh, Which was... you think would have been step one. Right. Now, the, <laughs> there were multiple articles, including Wikipedia, that said this, and I just thought this was a really funny statement. This fact, that he was working until 11 p.m. the night of Halloween, was corroborated by 200 of his co-workers. 200 people like you think like three would have been good no no they they got no, 200. Like, right no they literally like i just imagine police was he here was he here was he here like going down the line of 200 people verifying that they saw courtney melvin at work until 11 p.m halloween night or like even better they start like you know questioning people and like one guy's like no yeah he was totally here and then someone is walking by and they're like yeah, no, I saw him, and then that just happens unmasked until there's just like two hundred people in this like. Some guy lobby pops up from a cubicle. Yeah, Courtney was totally here. If you're like someone, here's like, his time card. Like, we took a selfie together. <laughs> right. Right. We, we took a selfie together. On our Polaroid together. camera. <laughs> right. We took a selfie with this Polaroid camera holding a newspaper together just for fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like, Courtney has a truly airtight alibi. Um, and as it turns out, Courtney's wife and child Did they check his home. arms to see if they were hairy? I, I didn't find out. Okay. I don't know. Damn it. I don't know. <laughs> I want to know, know how hairy his arms are, though. Um, so, so, Courtney's wife and child were home and handing out candy, but obviously neither of them are going to have, like, mannish hairy arms. Um, <laughs> right. But, but they, they were more than happy to cooperate with the police. Um, According to them, what had happened is they were handing out candy that night and because they loved Halloween and they ran out of candy. So they turned off the lights, hence the darkened house and ignoring everyone. Which is the polite thing to do. Right. They didn't have any candy to hand out. So there's literally nothing suspicious about them. Um, they were able to fully cooperate. They gave the police exactly what type of candy they were handing out and where they purchased it and all the information they need they were they were just super cooperative so courtney melvin is off the hook 
So Ronald is a bitch ass liar. Is what you're saying? Ronald could be a bitch ass liar. Ronald could be could be a, a pretty bitch ass liar. Um, so the police obviously go back to Ronald. They start looking at him more closely. Um, right, because now like. He's definitely prime suspect number one, if he wasn't before. Well, and now he's starting to act a little bit weird as far as the police are concerned. So Weirder. Distinctly inhuman. Oh, okay. Okay. Do tell. Yes. So apparently he was agitated, according to neighbors. Um, You know, if your son was murdered, you might be agitated. Uh, Right. But he wasn't agitated because his son had been murdered. He was agitated because he was feuding with his family now because none of them had stayed up late on the night of Timothy's funeral. Now, it turns out O'Brien had apparently, and this was like a big deal to him, he had complained about this to everyone in the neighborhood. O'Brien had purchased time on public access TV for the night after Timothy's funeral. And he had written a song about Jesus and Timothy joining Jesus in heaven and sang it live on air in the middle of the night following the funeral. And he's so angry with his family, he's not speaking to any of them because none of them stayed up late to watch his song. Okay. This is this is not normal behavior. No. I, this is I, decidedly really weird. Right. Now, everybody grieves differently, so far be it from me to judge. But... But it's a little weird. But it's weird, right? Right. So, of course, the police just keep doing what the police do. They keep digging. They look into people's pasts. They they do all that kind of stuff. Um, and Hinton, again, the lead prosecutor, is super, super tenacious. This man is is awesome. Um, well, right. He's like, we're not going to leave any stone unturned or any you know document unfaxed. Like right. we're gonna we're gonna find what's up. Right. Now, at this point in the story, um, I want to kind of shift away from the police view and the investigation discovery kind of element of the story. Um, if we had sponsors, right now would be a great time for a commercial break, but we don't. So, so just saying. So Yeah, so I'm just You have a on. product to sell. <laughs> right. right. Um, I have a Quip toothbrush, and I love it. Now, they're not paying me to say that, but I really like Quip. Anyway, um, <laughs> they've been on so many podcasts lately, and I'm like, I love this toothbrush, too. And I got it before like, it was popular. You're like, Yeah, and I got it before it was popular. Like, I can't even support my the podcasters that I like by, like, using their affiliate link because I already have one. Anyway, um, so, again, instead of following the police investigation, I want to take a step back and look at what we know in 2018 about Ronald O'Brien and his family. Okay. He was decidedly less stable and middle class put together than he originally looked, right? We said life was good. He's middle class fancy with the rest of his neighborhood and everything. It's not quite that way. He's not quite that stable. So in in the previous yeah. yeah. So in the previous ten years before um, Timothy's death, uh, during his marriage and the birth of his two children, he had held twenty one jobs. In, Wait, in, whoa. In, ten, in between the ages of 20 and 30, right? You and I are between the ages of 20 and 30. He held 21 jobs. I thought my, like, three full-time jobs was too many. Yeah. I can't imagine going through 21 jobs. That's, right. Yikes. Right. right. Can we stop and just think about how screwed this guy would be in, like, the world of digital background checks and LinkedIn? Like, and LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how do A you... LinkedIn page a mile on. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Um, so, apparently, he was also close to being fired at his current job at Texas State Optical because he was suspected of stealing from the company. 
Oh. Mm-mm. That's not good. Yeah. That's not good, boo. No, bad bad news bears. Um, so he had just defaulted on some bank loans that he had in order to maintain his lifestyle while he, you know, fluctuated in and out of 21 different jobs while raising his two kids. And I think his wife was a stay-at-home mother during this time raising right, their kids. Right, so she's not working. Well, I mean, she's doing a job. She's raising their kids. But she's not earning a paycheck from an outside source. Exactly. So he had just defaulted on some bank loans in the amount of around $100,000. A hundred thousand dollars, nineteen seventies, though, right? Yes, and I looked this up. That's around six hundred thousand dollars in twenty eighteen fun bucks. So that's like that's like pushing on a mill. Yeah, like we're over half a mill here. Um, so his car was obviously on the verge of repossession, and his house was being foreclosed because they were both used as collateral in a hundred thousand dollars worth of loans that he was defaulting on. These people were the epitome of living beyond their means. Absolutely, oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, so these are the types of people where... I mean, this is such a common refrain in true crime, though, right? Especially ones involving families, where it's like, oh, you have this perfect family with this perfect, nice house and a but nice neighborhood. But seemed. A nice car, right! And then it turns out that they've been, like, living solely off credit or yeah. whatever and also have, like, a terrible gambling addiction or something. Oh, my God, I feel like that's such, like like middle class fancy thing to do like like you you know you and your wife or you I, I should say you and your spouse together make like you know two hundred thousand dollars you both have six figure jobs and somehow you're still living paycheck to paycheck <laughs> like right and it's like huh okay like, so he's making yeah, like, we need a, a lot of bad choices here right, right. We, need, we needed to refinance and just get everything under one payment because we couldn't afford the uh you know the loan for the rv and the two cars and the atv and the house and you know the the prime the, and our cabin and our cabin's mortgage and the uh you know the home equity loan that we got for the uh, swimming pool that we installed in 2016 you know we just we just really had to refinance get everything under one umbrella interest rates a lot higher but our payment went way down it's great like what what <laughs> right. oh. so ronald is ronald is not in a good place ronald's not in a good place with money and uh, he's about to have all of his shit called on him like people are gonna find out i mean they're gonna have to move out of the neighborhood he's not gonna have a car he's not gonna have a job because he can't drive to his job and his job doesn't want him anyways because he's stealing from him his so. job doesn't want him right right so sometime in the previous year in 1973, um, I was actually, I was going to lead with this part of the story, but then I didn't just to like restructure it differently. But I thought this was like a nice little, uh, like, um, a red herring. Foreshadowing. Yeah, foreshadowing okay. a red herring. So sometime in the previous year, uh, in 1973, Ronald pressured his wife into an appointment with a life insurance agent. Oh, God. <laughs> saw this coming from 10 miles away. Not a mile away. 10. Right. Uh, so... Um, this might make you nervous if you didn't already know what happened to his family. Uh, or maybe it still makes you nervous because we still don't have a conclusion. It should make you nervous. Um, right. Also, it should make you nervous if you're his wife. Right. But don't worry. Because it doesn't matter. They got a life insurance policy with the, you know, with the insurance agent. Uh, but it ended up being canceled because they couldn't afford to pay the premiums. <laughs> because they didn't have any money. They couldn't pay because the they had bill. no money, right? Your premiums, you know, your monthly insurance bill. Well, he couldn't pay it, so um, 
no big deal. We're moving on, and everybody, you know, everybody lives. Nobody gets murdered today. Um, in 1973. In 1973. Um, people get murdered today all the time. Uh, and in 1974. Right. Now, I want to take a quick boring tangent and just talk about life insurance real quick, because there are two types of life insurance. There's whole life insurance and term life insurance. Term life is just what it sounds like. You pay premiums. Um, you know, you pay your premiums, and if you die within a specified term period, your beneficiaries get a big payout. Um, it's just like a normal insurance policy where you're, you know, paying for flood insurance. If you get flooded, there's a big payout. Um, you're basically just hedging your bets against death. Um, if you end up surviving the whole term, better policies might give you some of that money back at the end of the term, and you have to pay more money for that. If you're paying like the cheapest, cheapest of the cheap policy, you don't get anything back. It's basically just you've survived the term. Congratulations, nobody gets paid out. Right, you're still alive. That's your. That's what you get. Right, except you're the alive. Right, except the insurance company. They they get the payout from all the money. They get your money. Right. <laughs> right. Um, the whole life insurance um, is a little bit different, and this is where some confusion can come in because it's more like an investment whole life is basically just until you die no matter when that is and you basically just pay money into a policy and the insurance company invests it for you does some money management and some fancy accounting and then when you die your beneficiaries get all that money you invested in that insurance policy air quotes but really it's just like you know plus investment returns and that kind of stuff but really it's just like kind of a trust that you're that you're hedging for your eventual death because everybody dies eventually right Right. Well, and also, too, I know that some life insurance policies will have terms, almost like terms and conditions, meaning if you die under certain circumstances, certain things happen. Exactly. So in some cases, it's if you die a natural death, you're not going to get as much or you're not going to get anything as compared to like if you get hit by a car and you die. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like a construction worker drops a pole on you. Exactly. So um, life insurance, that's a good point. And we'll get to that because life insurance is just like any other insurance where it, it, the, the lower the risk, the lower the premiums you pay. If you buy flood insurance in Kansas, it's going to be way cheaper than flood insurance in New Orleans and vice versa for like tornado insurance. You're way more likely to get hit by a tornado in Kansas versus NOLA. Lower risk, cheaper premiums, high risk, high premiums. Right. Which is why Ronald couldn't afford risks or couldn't afford the life insurance for his wife because the risks of a late 20, early 30s housewife, even as low as that is, of death within a specified term was still too much for them to afford. So if you're a term life insurance company and you want to sell a policy to someone and you want to sell them the cheapest policy possible, who's the cheapest person and thereby the lowest risk person? To insure, maybe you're a person who wants to buy, uh, uh, you know, the cheapest insurance policy for whatever reason, and maybe you have debts you can't pay and you're defaulting on things, and you just want the cheapest insurance premium there is. So, who out of all people is the least likely to die anytime soon? Your children. Yeah, it's children. How about that? Low risk, wonderful children. Um. So. Yeah. Uh. You know, young, innocent children, decades of life ahead of them. It's basically a slam dunk for insurance companies. So they're willing, right. Right. They're happy to take your penny pot, you know, your your pennies every month. Just, uh, you know, sure, we'll take your money. Your children, your kids will you know, probably grow up. They're not going to die. They're fine. It's right. basically a slam dunk profit under all circumstances for most insurance companies. Um, and in most situations. And in most situations. And for the cheapest of the cheap policies, like we mentioned before, they don't pay out at the end of the term. The insurance companies just keep all that money. So, 
think you can see where this is going. In January of 1974, uh, Ronald O'Brien took out a $10,000 policy on each of his children. Um, and this was a policy that was a term life policy that specified unnatural deaths only. Um, you know, all that. Okay, okay, wait, wait, wait. Can I just pause you for a minute here? So the max he could get if both of his children died was was 20k. That's correct. His debts total like a hundred thousand. Yes. Huh. The math is not adding up, my friend. The The, the risk benefit is not adding up. (laughs) Right. O'Brien is not still not a good person. Uh, Good at math, good at anything. Good at being a father? No. Um, Good uh, at being just like a human? Not even really that. Yeah. (laughs) So, O'Brien reached out to his insurance adjuster uh, in September of 1974 and insisted on another insurance policy for each child, this time 20000 each, for a grand total of $60,000 across both kids. That's about $300,000 in today's money. Okay. So, now this is the 70s. It's not like he's shopping for various policies online. This is, like, purely conjecture on my part, by the way, by the way but it's pretty likely that he's gone to the same insurance agency, the same office, and probably talked to the same agent through all of this life insurance nonsense, including the one with his wife. This dude, like, the insurance agent would know that he can't pay this, right? Right. <laughs> like, so... um the insurance agent would later tell the police after being interviewed that he strongly objected to these new policies because Ronald couldn't afford them, but Ronald had insisted. <laughs> so, of course, police learn about these policies through the course of their normal investigations, because of course he would, right? And they also learn that Ronald had called to inquire about the claim process for his son's death on Friday, November 1st at 9 a.m. So, like, when the office opened. When the office like, opened. Like the minute they opened. The like day, he sat by his clock waiting. The day after Timothy had died. Like, like, come on, that's not suspicious at all. Like, normally you would think that if your child had just died, you would be too wrapped up in, like, grieving, trying to figure out what happened. Can you? All of that stuff that you wouldn't even. If a normal person would not immediately go, huh, that insurance policy. Can you imagine, like. Look at. Because there's no way that they, like, just left his son's body at the, like, morgue and then went home and had a good night's sleep, right? You're right. Like, they spent the entire night at the hospital and then at 9 a.m., probably from a payphone at the hospital or just after getting home, they, he called Oh. Right? You better believe that he had that number memorized. Yeah, I mean, it was Or, like, written on his hand. Yeah, it was immediate. Um... So, of course, after learning this, they immediately moved to arrest Ronald O'Brien for the murder of his son and the attempted murder of his daughter and three other children. They took him right. In, right? Yep. They took him into custody on November 5th, only five days after the murder. Um, they also learned that his wife had no knowledge of the policies on the children and wasn't involved in the plot at all. At no point did the insurance adjuster um, see his wife um, They, you know, while he was shopping for policies or anything like that. Um, she's... Like we can, we can very safely assume that um, he was that she was in the clear and had no knowledge right. of this. Well, and I assume too that she probably didn't know about all of his debt. Like uh, she was not all of it. Yeah, I can't imagine. She might she have did. known about some of it, but I, I mean, I heavily assume that he was putting on a front. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like how does how do two people make a conscious decision to like go into that much like screw themselves that hard, right? Right. So, like, where did he get the cyanide though? 
so it's it has the next sentence um so the police had been canvassing chemical supply stores and found that a man matching the name you know matching the description of ronald o'brien uh had entered a chemical supply store in houston looking for potassium cyanide this is my favorite thing about the 70s he left without buying any without buying anything after learning that the smallest quantity you could buy was five pounds <laughs> you could only buy it in five pound increments um, holy shit yeah so in 1974 you could just walk into a chemical supplier and buy potassium cyanide the only limitation was that you had to buy it in bulk <laughs> and of course he couldn't afford to buy five pounds he's broke right right he's broke as hell right so it's obviously him. also he's like i don't want to kill five pounds worth of children i don't want to kill it's too much work. It's too many pictures to open. Right. Um, so the police were able, were never actually able to determine that uh, where he had purchased the potassium cyanide, but it's probably just from like a chemical supplier that they missed, or you know maybe he stole it or something, or you know it's probably just from somewhere right. that the police were never able to track down. The point is he was shopping for it, and they were able to find conclusive proof that he was shopping for it. I just, right. They just don't know exactly where he ended up. Right, I just love that, like, like five pounds of potassium cyanide. What? 1970s? What the fuck? Um, so, of course, begins the trial. Um, he enters a plea of not guilty. Well, sure. Right. I don't know if he was offered Like, I know a plea that deal. is stuff. Well, and also, too, I know a lot of times, if you're a defense attorney, your job is to defend your client to the best of your ability. And a lot of times that includes entering, at least initially, a not guilty plea, even if they're going to later plead guilty. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's pretty common to do. Right. No, but I, from from what I read, it's pretty clear that O'Brien was maintaining his innocence against all odds. Um, Which, like, no one believed. Right. And, you know, like, attorney-client privilege, so we don't really know what happened between him and his attorney, but... Just from what O'Brien was saying to the media and to to you know in in person in court and to everyone else who would listen to him, he was professing his innocence at every turn. There was absolutely no point, I think, where he had turned and said, "I'm not, I'm actually guilty and I did it." Right. But it's pretty clear he did. So uh, during the trial, a former friend of O'Brien's, who just so happened to be a chemist. Testified that O'Brien had contacted him earlier in 1974 and asked how to administer how to administer potassium cyanide and how much would be a fatal dose. Which is just a weird thing to get a random call from. I, like, hey Jerry, hey Jerry, but, you're a chemist, right? Yeah, I know we haven't spoken in like a decade, so uh, listen, I was wondering. Yeah, what were you wondering? Just curious. Yeah, what's just up? Totally curious about sure. uh, potassium cyanide. Like, how, how much? How much would it take to kill a person? Oh, think? I mean, only you know, maybe half a gram to a gram, probably. You know, depending yeah, but, on yeah, the size of the person. Yeah, but to be safe, but to be safe, you'd wanna you wanna go overboard. Oh, okay. Well, well, thanks, thanks, Jerry. Nice to nice to talk to you. See you later. Like, yeah, sure. Have have a good one, Ron. Always oh, gone. Well, always that's a nice not a guy. weird conversation at all. Boy, I sure hope him and his family are doing well. They sure were a nice right. nice family. Anyway, like, you know, like, what, how do you not... I, right, how did that go? Right, I guess it's, you know, it's 1970s, not like you can Google it or anything like that. That always shocks me about, like, like, uh, I don't know, living in the future. It's like, what did people do before they could just Google whatever they wanted to know at any given time? 
Right, like I guess go to their library or ask everyone you know until you get an answer. And then sometimes you get a wrong answer. Yeah, they were just content with not knowing, I guess. It's very odd. It's a very odd thing to think about. Um, But I mean, that's certainly pretty damning. Yeah, very. So friends and coworkers of O'Brien's also testified, all stating pretty much the same thing. That in the months before Timothy's death, O'Brien showed an unusual interest, quoted, in cyanide and spoke how much it would take to kill a person again and again and again. O'Brien's sister-in-law and brother-in-law testified at the trial, saying that during Timothy's funeral, he described using the money from Timothy's insurance payout to take a long vacation and buy some things. This man is the worst. He he is! (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Through the trial, O'Brien did maintain his innocence. His defense attorney tried to build a case around the decades-old, uncorroborated urban legend about the mad Halloween poisoner who hands out candy laced with poison and needles or candy apples with razor blades in them. That was his defense case. That was the crux of his defense. His defense is some random wacko did it. Yeah. That we have no proof or connection to whatsoever. Or, and I I was going to save this until the very end, fact, this case is the only known case of any child ever dying or even attempting, like any attempted poisoning even, of any children on Halloween. There is no other case that has ever been documented, at least in the U.S., as far as things have been documented, that I could find or that anyone else has ever, like, if, if you hear something, tell me. Tweet it at me or something. Because as right. far as I know, this is the only case of anyone tampering with candy ever. That has happened So, yeah, so there's not, like, a strong history, like, where every year on Halloween, five kids die nationwide from poisoning. No, it doesn't. It literally doesn't happen. It's like the spiders thing. Like, like you swallow 70 spiders in your sleep a year or whatever it is. It doesn't happen. <laughs> it literally doesn't happen. I'm pretty sure that the myth is eight, but I mean, eight or 70, it doesn't really matter. Right. None of it's true. There's just one guy who eats 64 billion spiders a year. That's what it is. That's why it's on average. Oh, okay. I see. That makes sense. It's averaged out. Yeah. It's just averaged out across everyone in the world. There's just one guy that only eats spiders every year. So, like, hopefully this was, like, a slam dunk. The jury debated for five minutes and returned a guilty verdict. It took the jury 46 minutes to convict Ronald O'Brien of one count of first-degree murder and four counts of attempted murder. It took the jury a full 71 minutes to sentence him to death by lethal injection. Yeah, that's not looking good for you. Nope. Uh, Shortly after this, his wife filed for divorce. (laughs) Yeah, I don't blame her. Yep. Uh, Danine, I don't really know how to pronounce that name. D-A-Y-N-E-N. It's a very, like, King of the Hill name. Danine. She uh, later remarried and renamed their daughter Elizabeth. Um, And her name has been uh, held in secret to protect her privacy, which is good. get that because you don't want random people like you know what i mean you're like shopping at the store or you're you know like going to your doctor's appointment and people are like oh my god didn't your dad kill your brother and try to kill you like aren't you that person like yeah you probably want to leave it behind for sure as much as you can and this case was a nationwide scandal so oh for sure yeah this was famous um, so O'Brien was confined to the Huntsville Texas penitentiary where the chaplain who worked for the prison said that he was and this is a quote, shunned by the rest of the death row inmates, and was absolutely friendless. So much so that on the day of his execution, the rest of the death row inmates 
and the staff from the prison organized a demonstration to express their hatred of him. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Harsh. Yes. But he totally deserved it. I mean, yes. I don't feel bad for him at all. Not even a little bit. So, um, before his execution, though, uh, it was postponed twice. Um, he had uh, two, uh, one... One was a postponement. The next was a stay of execution um, because of some paperwork or something that his that his lawyer had filed. Uh, during the third one, when the third one was scheduled, uh, one local area judge offered to personally drive O'Brien to the execution chamber. Um, that date would have been the eighth anniversary of Timothy's death. He was if if that had actually happened, uh, Timothy or I'm sorry, Ronald O'Brien would have been the first person executed in Texas by lethal injection. Wow. Um, the date was again postponed though because Texas because the Texas Supreme Court ruled that O'Brien had a chance to pursue an appeal and seek a new trial. Um, that I don't know what happened with that. I couldn't find any evidence that he ever actually tried to submit an appeal, and maybe it was just turned down before it ever right. got that far. Yeah. Right. So a fourth date was scheduled, and this time his lawyer sought an additional stay, arguing that lethal injection was cruel and unusual punishment. A federal judge rejected the request. Um, so on March 28, 1984, nearly 10 years after his, son, after his son Timothy's murder, Ronald O'Brien was executed by lethal injection. His last words maintained his innocence. During the execution, a crowd of 300 demonstrators gathered outside of the prison. Some of them were there to protest the death penalty. But most were there to cheer the death of the Candyman and chanted and yelled "Trick or Treat" while showering the protesters with candy. Wow. Yeah. Um, as of 2016, Mike Hinton, the prosecuting attorney, uh, is still alive and practicing law. He's a private attorney in Houston. He reportedly never turns down an interview regarding the O'Brien case, saying, and I quote. I never get tired of talking about that sorry-ass son of a bitch. I like you, Mr. <laughs> Hinton. Yeah. Like, we can be friends. Yep. So, that is the story of the Candyman, or the man that killed Halloween. If you look at the Wikipedia page, which we will link, that is actually, like, you know, they always put other names. Like, Dwayne Johnson right. has The Rock right right of course yeah this man has the man that killed halloween <laughs> that's hilarious yes Sam. well and the thing that is so that's so fucked up it is so fucked up well and it's fucked uh, up too that through all of it he maintained his innocence know. you know what i mean it was like he said the lie so much he somehow convinced himself that it was true right well like his his wife um like you know maybe she was just comforting you know maybe maybe it was the, yeah, the human memory sucks so maybe she was just saying this for the purposes of interviews or maybe she believed it at this time to you know come to terms right. with everything but she had said yeah he did it like i totally believe that he did it i'd always known that he was capable of things like that like right and like his wife was totally on board with the fact that he was a child murderer and there was like no doubt in her mind that he had done it and that brings to light too one of like when you're talking about true crime there's like like a list of rules or a list of things that are just true and one of the main ones is you never know for sure what someone is capable of oh for sure you know this is one of those cases where people in his church probably thought oh he would never do that or oh, you God, know yeah. people around him and it's like no matter 
what you think or what you think you know, you are not that person. So you can never say for sure what a person could or could not do. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's like anyone is capable of, of anything. Like there's not a single person that is just not capable of doing that. It's like, no, we just don't do it because we're not horrible. <laughs> like, right. and, some, and some people are. That's just really the um yeah moral of the story don't murder your kids in fact just don't murder anyone just don't murder like uh, yeah no it's just it's it's just so fucked up that it was just for the insurance money and that it it was for like not like the amount shouldn't matter but it was such a comparatively small amount of money right right that no i totally agree that's like when you were talking about how much the life insurance policies were for i'm like that's not even gonna like get them out of debt it's not like oh i have this two hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy and so you know we'll get out of yeah. debt with money to spare like he's not even gonna right exactly hold on a second. you know break even so yeah that's that's one sad halloween story that's one very sad Halloween story. And like, like the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about it to me is that it is, like, it's not scary. It's just very sad in and of itself. But it, it really has inspired, just from the publicity of it, the most fear. Like, that is that is every parent's greatest fear. Like, parents are, of course, afraid they're, you know, little Timmy and his, like, Barney costume is going to get abducted or whatever. But I think the bigger fear is that you know, little Timmy is going to get poisoned or there's going to be razor blades and a candy apple or something like that. And it literally just doesn't happen. This was the only case of it ever happening, and it was a father doing it to his own son. Right, so there wasn't a boogeyman here. There wasn't some unknown, mysterious killer. It was the, the closest, one of the closest people to this child. So exactly. really, if anything, parents should be afraid of themselves. Yeah, no, and that's, that's always been true. It's the myth of stranger danger. Stranger danger is, like, despite the topic of this podcast and, <laughs> and this, the stories right. that we go through, the vast majority of the stories that we go through are like this, where it is a one-off. It is an outlier. It's interesting because of its rarity and uniqueness and, and because it's something that really doesn't happen very often to anyone. Um, and and yeah. this is, this is just another example of that happening. So if you have kids, give them a hug. If you don't have kids and you're going to hand out candy and Halloween, do it. Be friendly, be nice. Right. And if you don't have kids, don't just find a random kid to hug. I would advise against that. Agreed. Yeah. Really ask permission to hug anyone. It's just polite. Yeah, like another rule, not true crime rule, but just life rule, don't touch people without their permission. Right. Yeah. Just don't. Yeah, get consent. It's just it's just polite. It's more than polite. It, you need to do it. It's not like a, it's not like a nice thing to do. It's it's a thing you need to do. You should know that. Yeah. Well, that's our wisdom for you today. I, let's not do wisdom nuggets. We're we're not we're gonna run out of them very quickly. Agreed. Yeah. The only wisdom nugget you'll get from us. Yeah. Other than spooky wisdom. Boo. Stop.